Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Crystal Finter, who is an assistant professor of law at Eton in Mexico, a visiting scholar in psychology at Harvard University, and the founder of the Legal Priorities Project. We asked Christoph about all sorts of work that LPP is doing. Uh, this includes hearing about the results of a recent survey of legal academics about what areas and laws are most neglected. And we also talk about what current legal protections for future generations look like and what actions or research appear particularly promising to help strengthen this. I personally just really enjoyed hearing Christoph describe how he approaches long-termism through what is quite a specific lens of legal research, uh, which is also an area where EAs really haven't previously been very active in. Uh, LPP have also just done a lot of work in the year or so uh, since they launched, and if you want to learn more or even get involved with their work, you should go check out their website. Uh, It's super informative and just incredibly pretty to look at. As always, uh, we've included links and further readings in our write-up, but without further ado, here's the episode. I'm Christoph Winter, I'm a law professor at ITAM in Mexico City, and I'm currently based at Harvard's psychology department, but I'm also the director of the Legal Priorities Project. Roughly half of my uh, time is spent on research. I'm currently finishing a book uh, on criminal law theory, and I'm at the very fun stage where you finished the book a while back, and now you're revisiting it with a fresh mind and switching between something like thinking, oh, this is a really great passage, and then on the next page you question everything again. It's a very healthy stage of a research project. Um, And then most of the other half of my time is spent on thinking about strategies, community building efforts, hiring plans, all kinds of different activities related to growing uh, LPP. And then there are also some speaking engagements, such as like, giving talks at universities or, you know, attending, attending a podcast like this one. Uh, you mentioned the Legal Priorities Project there and that it takes up uh, a lot of your time. Uh, can you maybe just briefly outline um, what it is that you are doing there and what you hope to achieve with it? So the Legal Priorities Project is a global project and we aim at advancing legal research that tackles the world's most pressing problems, which we call Legal Priorities Research. And our current focus here lies on the protection of future generations. I should say that by advancing legal research, we mean that we not only conduct the research ourselves, that's the first thing we do, but we also try to build and support a community of legal scholars that that works on these issues. And since the ultimate goal is to effect positive real-world change, we also engage with policymakers to some degree And I kind of expect that this last part will increase over time as we become more knowledgeable about what we exactly want to advocate for. Could you say something about how legal priorities research is different from global priorities research? So legal priorities research is, first of all, based on the idea that legal scholarship should prioritize among possible research questions, ideally using first principles and evidence-based reasoning and refer to this practice, as well as the research resulting from it as legal parties research. As I mentioned before, we focus on the protection of future generations and what has been referred to as long-termism, but prioritization itself does not require that. You can prioritize differently, but I think you should be explicit about the how and why of prioritization and what assumptions you're making. Our assumptions are quite simple. We want to treat everyone as equal, not just in space, but also in time. 
And given that the vast majority of people live in the future and the fact that there are serious risks to that future and potentially other ways to positively impact that future, this is where our current focus lies. And within future generations, this leads us to focus on risk from artificial intelligence and biosecurity in particular, but we also have this somewhat broader cost area of institutional design. And here we really look at a range of things from the general protection for future generations to legal mechanisms that reduce unknown risks, improve general uh, cooperation or coordination, decision-making processes within relevant institutions, which includes both the legislator and the executive, but also the judiciary. Now, with regards to how legal priorities research differs from global priorities research, in a way, legal priorities research is applied global priorities research. It's a, it, it's a subfield, if you want to say. Importantly, though, it, it is not a subfield in the sense that we try to solve the biggest problems within law. We still try to solve the biggest problems globally, but we focus on the means of the law. The, the problems are essentially the same, but the means we are tackling these problems with are of legal nature. It's still highly interdisciplinary for sure, but legal in its essence, I would say. So I would be really keen to hear if you could maybe lay out the landscape of how law at the moment thinks about the protection of future generations. And in particular, this recent survey that you did uh, that tried to investigate how lawyers and academics think about uh, future generations. So we, and, and, and that is Eric Martinez, uh, uh, my co-author and, and myself, ask a bunch of law professors, and I, sh I should specify law professors in the English-speaking world, and in our case, this was Australia, the UK, Canada, India, South Africa, and Bangladesh. We asked them, among other things, to rate how much their legal system, first, currently does, and secondly, ideally should, protect the welfare, which we understood broadly as the rights, interest, and well-being of, of, of humans living now in the near future which we understood as between now and in 25 years time medium future 25 to 100 years time and far future 100 plus years from now and we asked these law professors to rate the estimated current level as well as the desired level of protection for these groups on a scale from 0 to 100 with 0 representing not at all and 100 representing as much as possible and what we saw was that First, the, the gap between the current and ideal level of protection, according to law professors, became bigger and bigger the further in time people are away. And second, the desired protection for future generations, 100 plus years from now, was three times higher than the estimated current level of their legal protection. Uh, that, that, that's a huge gap, and that was also much more than we expected. What I also want to mention in this regard is that a quite... Interestingly, these results hold true independent of, of demographic factors such as age, gender, specific legal training uh, participants received, and also independent of political affiliation, which was somewhat surprising to us as well. But like at least on the latter, we might be a little careful about these numbers since there are not very, not very many conservatives in, in academia these days. And, and so the numbers might be a bit too small to draw any uh, great conclusions from that. There's a gap between the extent to which legal academics and lawyers believe the law should protect the welfare of future generations 
and the extent to which it in fact does. Can you say something about how that gap changes, if at all, when you change the definition of, quote, future? So, for instance, when you change the word future from meaning 25 years out to something like 100 or 1,000 years out. So, so in this case, uh, we actually only had the uh, framings of like humans living right now in the next 25 years, 100 years, 100 plus years from now. In other questions, we also asked them about 1,000 plus years from now. Uh, but uh, still, we can see that the gap gets uh, bigger and bigger. Uh, th there's not a zero discount rate with regards to the desired level of protection by, by law professors, but uh, it's not nearly as strong as law professors think it currently is. Um, so to, just to give you some concrete numbers, law professors thought that on average, the level of protection humans living right now uh, receive uh, should be a bit above 80 out of 100. And for humans living 100 plus years from now, it should be a bit less than 75. But what they estimate is that it is currently a bit less than 75 for humans living right now. So what it should be for humans living in 100 plus years is roughly the level of protection humans living right now receive. And they estimate that the current level of protection for humans in the far future, in this case defined as 100 plus years from now, is less than 25 uh, out of 100. So roughly a third of uh, what law professors think on average the protection ought to be. Sorry, do you mind me really quickly asking what those numbers mean, the 75s and 80s? Yeah, so, so, so as mentioned uh, before, uh, we asked law professors uh, to rate the, the current estimated level of protection and the desired level of protection. And we had them rate these levels of protection on a scale from zero to 100, with like zero meaning not at all, and 100 meaning as much as possible, if that clarifies something. Got it, thanks, yeah. that's great. Yeah, so it definitely seems, or my impression from, from hearing this, is that um, even you know the status quo or the mainstream law profession um, would see that there is this big shortfall in the protections that we should be having for future generations. But I could also imagine um, that maybe, you know, what the law profession is just saying is that there just aren't many legal protections in general, right? Regardless of what kind of like group we're looking at, whether that be future generations um, or current humans or animals or the environment or else. Could you maybe put this in, in contrast, right? These future generations group with, with other demographics um, or, or groups that we might care about? What we see, in fact, is that the gap between the current and desired level of protection is biggest with regards to humans in the far future and after that for those in the medium future, even greater than the gap for non-human animals, the environment, humans outside the jurisdictions, you, you, you name it, bigger than for any other group uh, we tested. But of course, uh, this should not, the, the takeaway of this should not be that every other group is kind of doing fine from this perspective. That, that's not at all the case. For instance, animals' current level of protection was estimated at roughly 40, but the desired level was almost twice as much, I think uh, roughly 75. And, and, and maybe on this note as well, a majority of law professors also thought that there's a reasonable legal basis for granting standing in at least some cases to non-human animals, which you know, so far courts had trouble with doing that. So th th there are gaps at like, for, for many groups, um, but the gap for uh, far future humans was biggest um, among the groups we tested. 
And there's another question here, which is the extent to which these law professors believe that the law can actually be used to protect the welfare of future generations at all, right? Like, that is whether law can be used as a mechanism for looking after these future people in any kind of reliable or feasible way. Did you get some indication of their um, beliefs about feasibility through the survey as well? I should first emphasize this is a really important question for legal long-termism because if law is in no way able to affect the long-term future in a predictable manner, uh, be it via reducing existential risk or uh, some indirect way via changing values, then long-termists should not bother with law. Um, but what we see, at least according to law professors, roughly three quarters think that the law can predictably and feasibly influence the long-term future, defined as 100 plus years from now. And the majority still said that it's possible to affect the very long-term future, which we defined as 1,000 plus years from now. Um, but of course, we we might expect legal academics to say that, so we should take this with a grain of salt. Mm. Do you have um, maybe an explanation or an idea as to how um, legal professors would, would see law being able to protect future generations through through what sort of mechanisms might that be? Yeah, um, we ask, also ask about specific and, and different uh, legal uh, mechanisms, um, and especially about different areas of law and whether these are suited to predictably and feasibly influence the long-term future. And the ones which performed best were constitutional law and environmental law. But you might want to be a bit careful about these results here because strikingly, and I think this is one of the like, funniest results, is that environmental law performed even better than law as a whole, <laughs> which, you know, since environmental law is part of law, is logically impossible. Um, so Eric and I speculate that this may be related to the conjunction fallacy, where people overestimate the likelihood of some more specific events. Um, I should probably explain the conjunction fallacy. I, I think it goes back to Kahneman and Tversky even, and, and the Linda case, where, where participants get asked which case is more probable. So, so you first guess, get, get a description of the case, which is something like Linda is like 32 years old, um, outspoken, very bright, majored in philosophy, and so on and so forth. And she's very concerned with issues of discrimination and social social justice. And and then participants get asked, which is more probable? A, Linda's a bank teller, or B, Linda's a bank teller, and she's a feminist. And for some reason, quite a few people seem to prefer B. They think B is more probable. And so for similar reasons, they might also think that environmental law is more able to accomplish long-term impact than law as a whole, just as Linda is more likely to be a bank teller and a feminist than just a bank teller. <laughs> um, more, more generally, though, what I should note as well is that law professors, in response to your question, law professors seem to think that legal mechanisms are among the best mechanisms of all the possible mechanisms available to influence the long-term future in a predictable and feasible way. But again, at least to some degree, that, that may well be self-serving. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this seems really interesting. I think there's maybe an important um, thing to note here is that if the legal profession seems very optimistic that um, environmental law and especially climate change, right, seem to be really good mechanisms for getting um, protections of future generations in place, how this might square with 
the overall mission of legal priorities, where you kind of touched upon right at the beginning, um, many of the important cause areas are AI and um, bio risks and the like. Can you maybe speak to that at all, if there is a tension there or like how much crossover you, you see between these cause areas? From the perspective of the people we ask, that is somewhat unsurprisingly, they identify uh, climate change with regards to 100 plus and a thousand plus years from now, which allows legal scholars to have the biggest impact on the long-term future. Um, but it's also the case that other potentially, potentially even more typical long-term areas are, are tractable as well. Um, like the ratings for biosecurity, AI, nuclear war, and so on, were also quite high. Uh, what I should emphasize here is that we need to be precise about the exact question we ask <laughs> to, to avoid confusion. So what we did not ask was something like, what are the most important issues, all things considered? But what we did ask was whether there are predictable and feasible legal mechanisms through which to influence the long-term future with regards to different types of risks, right? And then in the beginning, I mentioned that we as LPP are particularly concerned with biosecurity and advanced artificial intelligence. Um, but here, uh, according to law professors, climate change scored really high, which also makes some sense because we know a lot more with regards to how to mitigate the effects of climate change than, say, how to solve the AI alignment problem. And so because we know more about how to mitigate these effects, they uh, might be more confident in saying that it's more likely that we can have these predictable and feasible effects on the long-term future by working on this area because we already know a bit more about how it works. Okay, so it sounds like at least the legal professors you surveyed are pretty interested in protecting future generations, but there's not a great deal of legal scholarship on that topic um, or the cause areas associated with it. What's going on there? What, what accounts for that, that kind of neglect? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. My best guess is that lawyers are in some sense humans too, which would mean that all cognitive apl uh, biases apply to them as well. Maybe a bit more so when selecting research topics intuitively than when thinking about abstract protection levels as they did in our survey. And there are, qu there are quite a few biases which are relevant in this context, uh, such as present bias, um, scope neglect in particular, given how large the future might be. And with regards to existential risks, unavailability bias, especially since, you know, we are alive, which means that at least extinction didn't yet occur. And all, all these things don't really work in, in favor of future generations. We also never had the chance to cooperate with future humans properly. So any sort of cooperative evolutionary mechanism did not evolve. There's no feedback mechanism. You might argue that there are your that there are your children and grandchildren and so on. And these arguments probably have some force in terms of convincing people. So we might even want to frame it this way, but those are not the reasons why people worry about the long-term future. I don't think we should protect future generations because there may be a few descendants of ourselves, but rather because there are billions of billions of people who might be interested in enjoying life as well, who are not related to us or as little as related as possible. Yeah, do you mind me quickly 
pushing back on that answer because it's interesting, but what I had in mind is, sure, you can tell a story about why legal experts and the rest of us uh, in general might neglect these kind of long-termist causes. But we have a survey which indicates that they're at least more interested, that, well, they say they're more interested in these topics on the survey than they are in their their work. So there's a difference there, like the bias is switched off, at least in this in this one case, in this survey. So it feels like there's a kind of extra puzzle piece to, to, to add into that answer. Yeah, so... I yeah, I think uh, like what I tried to say was there might be a difference in terms of researchers intuitively selecting research topics, like basically doing a research project, and then out of this research project, there are like three or four more fun questions you want to do research on, and they, then they just go with it. There's no like very conscious prioritization efforts in law or almost any other discipline, to be honest. And I think that if you go about uh, selecting your research projects in this intuitive manner some biases might apply um, it um, there might also be career incentives to to publish more quickly because you're already familiar with these uh, lines of research then to step back and think like what is the most pressing problem in the world and uh, and then get to the conclusion that oh, maybe like future generations would be one option um, to what the rights and welfare of future generations would be one option to take seriously and then try to think through how to address some of these challenges. So I think there, um, there might be difference going on in, in, in that regard. That makes sense. So I guess the crucial point is that in surveys like these, you are explicitly prompting these people to consider, hey, what matters most, all things considered? But when some legal academic is sitting down to think about what to write, write about next, very rarely are they going to be asking themselves those questions unprompted. Yeah, that's right. And I, like, what was really interesting to see is that when we sent the survey around, we, sent, we had to send it around to thousands of law professors in order to get to the response numbers we, we now have, is that quite a few law professors actually applied to um, work with LPP in one way or another or to become an affiliate because I think there was this sort of unleash effect that people saw the survey and were like, oh, <laughs> they, that, that, that's a good point. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should work on this. Um, there were other parts of the survey which we haven't yet written up uh, which were more related to prioritization. Um, and in some of those parts, we actually saw that when we asked law professors about uh, whether they think uh, legal scholarship should generally increase prioritization efforts and think much more carefully about what they're working on. Uh, a vast majority of them said like, yeah, let, let's do that. That sounds, that sounds right. I would be up for that. And then we asked them, what do you think your colleagues would, would respond to these questions? And often they said like, no, <laughs> I, I don't think they would actually they want to prioritize more carefully. So what we are hoping for is a sort of unleash effect where people become aware that, oh, actually, all my colleagues also think that, or the vast majority of my colleagues also think that we should prioritize A, more carefully. And secondly, a lot of people are interested in protecting future generations and think their interests are really neglected. Um, I might be underestimating how many people actually do think that this is a really big concern and that there should be more research going into it. Um, yeah, so this, this makes me kind of hopeful that there is this possibility of a change within legal research towards more prioritization and also towards um, more uh, 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 of a long-term uh, focus.
one other um, like thing I wanted to maybe flag or, or ask you to, if you can can speak to it, is this um, aspect that international law plays in all of this. So we talked about right the world's most pressing problems, and and one uh, common conclusion that you can reach from this as well is that um, the issues that you end up uh, focusing or prioritizing on are kind of global in scope. Um, but there seems to be this kind of very like national focus uh, that that law has. Can you can you speak to that at all? Okay, so just to disentangle this, I think it's helpful to distinguish between global and national issues and then national and international law. But to me, law, regardless of whether that's national or international law, does not have intrinsic value, but it can be a great tool to solve problems. And I would argue that global problems are more important to solve than national problems, other things being equal. And then the next step is to ask how we can solve the problems we identified as most urgent. And with regards to legal scholarship, we can then choose between national and international law approaches. Of course, if you can make a contribution towards solving an issue in many jurisdictions at the same time, that's great. But you also have to factor in how tractable this is. And focusing on one jurisdiction is likely, uh, surprise, surprise, more tractable than focusing on many. At the same time, I don't think we should adopt a general rule as in like always focus on US law exclusively or only work on international law, for instance. Uh, rather, we should ask ourselves how we can best contribute to solving problem X. Of course, on, on an individual level, skills also become quite relevant. If you have been educated in Hungary all your life, it may be tough to become the, the go-to expert in, in Chinese military law. Um, one thing I want to emphasize, though, is in particular, is what we refer to as cross-jurisdictional value. This means that if we think that a national law approach is more promising, all things considered, you can still pick to solve problems in a way that can be replicated elsewhere. Right? So, for instance, if you can reasonably argue that human rights apply independent of at what time that human happens to be alive, then you can apply this line of reasoning in many jurisdictions, even if you have been primarily uh, focusing on, on a specific jurisdiction. Whereas if you solve a problem by finding a fun way to interpret a very national, unique statute that does not exist um, in a similar form anywhere else in the world, that would have very little cross-jurisdictional value. Okay, super. Let's talk a little more concretely about the landscape of legal protection for future generations, what it looks like right now and what it could look like in the near future. Are there legal mechanisms available right now or that you're especially excited about that look like pretty good bets for looking after the welfare of future people or preventing existential threats? Uh, so I think there are two different kinds of legal mechanisms. The which are relevant in this regard. The first one being to protect future generations generally, and the second one would be to protect against more or less specific risks, which we, which may be very beneficial, especially for future generations, particularly if those are existential risks. So on the former, uh, the more general protection of future generations, there are quite a few different mechanisms available. Um, Rinan Araujo and Leonie Kostner, who both uh, work at LPP, have analyzed constitutions around the world and found that 81 of the present constitutions protect future generations in one way or another. Um, and re 
regarding your, your questions uh, with regards to current developments. I'm excited that the UK is discussing a future generations bill that I think would enable more general protection to future generation, but also more specific protection from existential or catastrophic risks, at least to some degree. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see how, how, how this bill develops. Then on the second type of mechanisms, the, the, the more specific protection via reducing specific risks, there's a lot going on with regards to climate change, climate litigation efforts and, and, and judgments uh, already in, in Germany, France, Australia and many other places. Mm. Some, I think, are more exciting than others because they apply more generally with regards to future generations, which means that it is at least somewhat likely that there could be litigation efforts on other risks by applying similar or essentially the same arguments. But there's also lots of uncertainty um, and lots of space for research, to be honest. One, one last point. Um, I should mention more generally that lo lo laws are quite abstract by nature and apply also new scenarios. Only because there's no statute on, say, autonomous driving does not mean that no laws apply. I often have the impression that people discuss these policy questions very, very quickly without checking what the law currently says and how one might apply specific laws to a new technology. Just to give, to give some examples, uh, there are tons of laws regarding the safe development of new products. Um, there are statutes everywhere. I'm, not, I'm far from being an expert in that, uh, but I cannot imagine that there is a jurisdiction out there that does not have any general laws regarding the safe development of technologies. So before asking what regulation would ideally look like, we often need to ask first how would this or that case currently be solved and, and, and there's really a lot more to be done. Kind of referencing the survey uh, we talked about earlier on, one of the things that um, people seem to be really keen about was kind of constitutional law um, as a mechanism to, to get um, protections for future generations in place. Can you elaborate about what that would look like in practice or even um, what precedents might, might already exist? That's a tough one because we would also want to find out which of these constitutional norms are especially effective or more effective than other ones. Um, uh, on, the, on the plus side, as I mentioned before, there are 81 constitutions uh, worldwide currently protecting future generations in one way or another. And, and that's already a really useful insight and, and good news. Um, unfortunately, protection in law does not always mean protection in practice. So Renan and Leonie in their paper, which has just been published, and I encourage you to check it out, uh, list and analyze these constitutional future generation protection clauses. And they think that the strongest de facto protection of future generations right now comes from constitutional provisions that are associated with an expansion from environmental rights. So the German and Brazilian constitutions might be good examples in this case, but again, these are still somewhat isolated examples and countries um, that have the strongest protection in law, for, for instance, by outlining specific institutions to protect future generations, such as funds, commissioners, and so on, have not led to the strongest de facto protection. I think the example they point out in, in their study are Niger and, and South Sudan, um, uh, which established funds in their constitutions, but never actually created them. So uh, personally, my best guess, <laughs> really with an emphasis on guess, is that associating rights of those in the far future with the rights of existing people in the here and now 
might be the best strategy regarding constitutions, basically claiming that fundamental rights apply independently of time. Um, but lots more research needs to be done here and potentially also some litigation efforts. Another reason why, why it's tough to judge constitutional norms, especially those which are narrow in their scope, is that there is at least a chance that these broader constitutional norms may do well in the medium term because you can read a lot into them. Maybe more precise norms are better in the near term, but if we think that humanity's moral circle will continue to expand and historical trends at least seem to suggest that if we take the bigger picture and don't focus too much on the recent years, that this could well be the case. Or if we think that humanity will one day wake up and acknowledge some of these risks we've been talking about, then I imagine that these broad constitutional norms protecting future generations more generally can come in really quite handy because they can evolve more progressively than, than narrow norms. Mm. Yeah, could, could I just ask, so you mentioned um, these 81 constitutions, which have some provisions and in particular highlighted Germany and Brazil. What would these provisions look like? So this is probably like a very naive take here, but if I think, for example, like freedom of speech, I think of like the First Amendment in the US Constitution, like what would here like an equivalent be? Um, and, and how would, does this like fall short, right, in theory versus kind of in, in practice? Can you give maybe a, a concrete example there? I think they can... Well, not only I think it, I, they do look very different um, uh, depending on the constitution. So, and sometimes uh, they are very unusual uh, laws. Um, if you, for instance, think about the like German basic law and Article 28 of the constitution, uh, future generations are protected or the protection of future generations is embedded or conceptualized as a state goal which is very unusual, not only for the German constitution, but for almost any other constitution as well. Most jurisdictions don't even have any uh, 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 sort of state goals in, in this kind of uh, conceptualized legal way. Um, it's not clear at all how effective they are. I think they can be very effective, as the recent judgment might indicate. Um, but the timing must be right. Um, overall, g given that we are so uncertain and that there are so many different options to protect future generations out there, we do actually plan to run some experiments on what kind of constitutional norms or statutory norms do really well from a long-term perspective. Um, so how we currently plan to set this up is to make a case or come up with a case which we will then ask law students to solve uh, giving different groups of law students different laws uh, or provisions and see which one of these provisions is actually most effective. Um, but then again, this is like a kind of an unusual approach in legal research and this project is really just starting. Uh, so we'll have to see um, what comes out of that. Cool. Let's zoom out a bit. I'm pretty naive about how laws get made at all. Can you say something about how legal change has in fact worked in the past, especially along these long-termist lines. And are there any recent case studies which might be uh, which might be especially interesting for kind of EA types? Yeah. So I think being naive can sometimes be an advantage, almost there, <laughs> um, because otherwise you might uh, think about certain causal connections, which in fact 
don't really exist. Uh, but but maybe let me start. Uh, so so first, just to lay out the obvious, law can change primarily through the legislator or through case law. But what exactly caused this or that legal change is very tough to determine and really d depends on a case-by-case -case basis. So for example, the rule of law in the Industrial Revolution is very much debated, with patent law being especially often mentioned as a crucial engine for the Industrial Revolution in these debates. Now we can see it again, or at least in, in similar veins, regarding COVID and whether patents should be made publicly available to, to increase vaccine production. Um, we can clearly see that this seems to matter. For instance, if you free your patents and you, you don't compensate companies very generously, you might set some very terrible incentives for future pandemics. But overall, I believe people are very often way too quick to claim the impact of law and legal change on societal norms, especially lawyers. If you look at bigger societal trends or shifts, such as the introduction of human rights, it's really not clear whether one should start with specific legal procedures, the historical and political context and so on, or whether you have to go back a bit more in the causal chain to how humans think in general and why this sort of universalist thinking that allowed human rights to be adopted was actually a major force, um, was actually a major force behind it, as, 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 as Joe Hendrick would argue. Um, now, then of course you can go even further back and ask, well, why was this kind of psychology so successful and so on? Um, and here, I, I really recommend reading Hendrick's recent book, The Weirdest People in the World, where he outlines the many different factors that might have contributed to this kind of unique psychology that allowed human rights and other universalist uh, principles to emerge and spread and so on. Um, with regards to your question on recent cases, I would probably mention the recent German Federal Constitutional Court decision on issues related to climate change. There are many other climate litigation efforts as well, but I like this judgment in particular and thought it's important in particular from a long-term perspective because they not only relied on the general future generation protection clause, uh, which is embedded in environmental uh, protection in, in Germany's basic law, uh, which is a rather unique article, uh, so it has little cross-jurisdictional value, uh, but they relied on, at least to some degree, also on fundamental rights um, which makes it a lot more likely that this sort of reasoning can be applied elsewhere. And by, by elsewhere here, I mean in different jurisdictions, but also to different challenges future generations might face. Um, so th th that's one example. There, there are lots of other uh, more generally EA-relevant judgments. Um, in Mexico, they recently shut down a factory farm, um, which... Uh, I have to say, made me quite happy. And interestingly, the reasons um, the judgment gave were related to, not only to human and, and non-human animal health of those affected by this factory farm in the region, but also to risks of, of pandemic, environmental destruction, um, and you know all these kinds of things effective altruism cares about. So going back to the, the first bit of your response, I find 
you know, this seems to be like one of the fundamental questions of like, what is it that comes first, right? Is it legal change? Is it social change, attitudinal change? Um, is it technological change? And yeah, I'm, I'm curious in particular when you're thinking about how law intersects with these, as we said, global priorities, which are like extremely technological, right? AI, synthetic biology. What is it that you see that law can do kind of uniquely here or, or what its kind of role is um, as opposed to, right, like a lot of this like kind of technical work that happens such as like AI safety work or um, trying to get like certain like more, more defensive uh, technologies in Invented. What is it really here that you see that that law can add? Yeah, it, uh, I, I think like it uh, very very heavily depends on the context. Um, but I think there are different mechanisms um, the law can use to have an independent or a counterfactual um, positive impact in this regard. Um, I think in order to clarify. Um, it makes sense to distinguish here again between narrow and, and and more broader laws. So, for instance, if you think, or if you know what the challenges precisely look like that, like advanced artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, um, or specific applications thereof bring about, you might want very concrete laws. That might be the case for climate change, even a bit more so than for AI on average. Um, but of course, you will have to distinguish again on a case by case basis, depending the exact challenge you want to tackle. But you also might want to distinguish between higher and lower ranking laws. So should you focus on constitutions or statutes and regulations? This could also depend on your timelines of risks. If you think that existential risk is particularly high in the next, say, 20 years even, probably you want to focus on concrete statutes and policies rather than constitutional changes. If you think it is actually not that high, you might want to focus on more general value changes, which arguably constitutions might be a better target for. Um, um, and that could be one way in which the law might have an impact um, that is independent of the impact of that technology or the impact of AI safety work. Uh, but again, there's lots of uncertainty and it really depends on the exact problem you aim to address. Something that seems to be almost robustly good is to get future generations more generally uh, better legal protection, better representation in political systems, which, as we have seen, would be endorsed by law professors across the world. Um, however, even if you accomplish this, this may not be able to mitigate or even eliminate all risks, of course. And I'm, I'm quite happy that many researchers in the long-termist community focus on more concrete risks from AI and bio, um, such as CSET, CSER, FHI, GCRI, FLI, there are lots. APP focuses a bit more, not exclusively though, by all means, on abstract higher ranking laws than, um, uh, than on these more narrow policies. Um, but you know, this can also change as we learn more. Maybe one final concern, I want to mention with regards to how one should actually go about this. It's not yet clear to me that addressing the legislator is the best strategy here in general, but especially for LPP, since obviously first uh, future generations cannot vote, which means they are not represented in the legislator or government um, and, 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 and thus don't, don't have a lobby. 
And second, everyone else in the long-term space is already focusing on that. So you might want to consider focusing a bit more on the judiciary. Um, I'm not sure about this. It's an ongoing question we are looking into. When you think of courts and legislators or the executive and liberal democracies, it's the courts that make sure the liberal part of the value system is upheld and those are taken care of who are in the political minority, right? Um, even though future generations are far from being in the minority, um, that's the whole reason uh, why we, or part of the reason why we focus on them. Um, uh, in terms of absolute numbers, their interests are not represented in democratic elections, right? So going through the courts could be a viable option, um, but again, we're still uh, looking into this um, and and to what degree uh, litigation might add something that more uh, AI, uh, technical AI safety work or uh, safety work on other technologies might not be able to offer. So yeah, like like one other thing that seems to be linked um, to what you've been saying here is that often you don't know exactly like what threat or what kind of like um, situation you will be dealing with, especially, right, like when we're trying to come up with legislation for things in the future that are 10, 20, 30, even like hundreds or, or thousands of years uh, ahead. And here this like question of specificity seems to matter a lot. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about, um, yeah, the, the, the critical trade-off here between how you might want to word a law um, or, or a policy more more broadly mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a really important question um maybe just first i should mention again that the very benefit and characteristic of laws um as i pointed out before is that they're often very abstract um but of course especially with regards to let's say criminal law which may be relevant in such contexts you will likely have to be a bit more precise than say criminalize the increase of existential risk and leave it up to the courts to de define what this actually means. So you could enact more specific. Um, for instance, environmental criminal laws such as ecocide criminalize the use of specific tools you think are pretty risky. Uh, let's say fa face recognition tools or lethal autonomous weapons or something like that. But because these would all take a rather specific behavior, that would not take care of the yet unknown risk. So, in addition to these more specific laws, you should probably also consider different ways to take care of those risks that are yet unknown, at least to some degree. And I actually think that there are different ways to do that. So, one way would simply be to try to be more abstract. Um, but the tougher question here is, is, is obviously how this might look like in practice. Um, one idea I have in this regard is that in some civil law countries in particular, there are so-called abstract endangerment laws. They're a bit tough to understand, but the concept may be quite relevant for our purposes. Um, to explain this, I should distinguish between concrete endangerment laws and abstract endangerment laws. So in, an example of a concrete endangerment law is that if you set a house on fire, and, there's, and then there's a person, and it turns out that there's a person in there, which you don't know. And even though this person will be safe, you will get some extra punishment, depending on the jurisdiction, even the different statute or offense may apply, um, because there was a concrete risk to the life of that person. Now, very similar scenario. Only difference is there was no person in there. 
no concrete risk at all. But you may still be punished more so than for just setting something on fire because, uh, and this is where it gets a little tricky, you risk to put somebody in risk. We might say that in the first case you create a risk of harming a person in the house, while in the second case you take a risk that you are creating a risk for that person, right? Uh, so this general logic could be applied in some cases that are relevant for long-termists and others caring about existential risks. Um, for example, developing transformative artificial intelligence without making sure this will not go horribly wrong might already fit this criterion, even if you don't yet fully understand the exact nature of that risk or who you put under risk. My more personal take on the concept of these abstract endangerment laws is that a risk of creating a risk is simply a risk, but as I introduced it, is how the difference is usually understood. And it certainly has some clarification value. All right, um, another option to tackle this is instead of determining what people are prohibited from doing, because there's uncertainty as to what exactly one should prohibit, or you want to take additional steps, is to legally require future governments to do something about the risks that may become more visible. Uh, for instance, you could pass a law requiring the government to spend X amount of GDP on, on existential risk reduction efforts, uh, whatever turns out to be an ex ex existential risk. Um, so to, to respond to your question, there are these trade-offs when it comes to narrow and broader or more abstract laws. Do you want to increase the likelihood of preventing one specific risk but making it less likely that the norm applies to other risks, or do you want to decrease the likelihood of different risks, um, maybe even from different technologies, but making it somewhat uncertain whether the law actually applies in cases you really care about. But uh, that having said, I, I would not want to view this necessarily as you can only pursue one strategy. My best guess is that we should work on different strategies to, to change the law to reduce existential risks. And there are in fact different strategies strategies available, uh, some of which I alluded to need to be analyzed much, much more than, than we were able to do so, so far. But, you know, that's, I guess, one reason why IPP exists. Cool. I really like the sound of these abstract endangerment laws. It sounds like they could be worth looking into more as kind of interesting uh, long-termist oriented legal tools. Um, but I'd be curious to ask about this more kind of general tension that you occasionally come across when you're thinking about how to make the long run future go go well. And that is, um, you might think, first of all, well, all else equal, if I have an opportunity to create some lasting change, that is to, you know, lock in some values, um, I should be doing it as soon as possible. But often all else isn't equal because I might also think that in the future, um, I'm likely to be more knowledgeable about the effects of my decisions and I might even be kind of wiser. I might just have a better idea of what's best to do in general. And that gives rise to some question, which is how urgent should I feel about these opportunities for locking in uh, various changes? And how should I think about keeping my options open in the future if I'm going to be better at making those decisions um, when that future comes? That seems especially relevant when it comes to law because citation needed, laws last a long time, um, especially constitutions, right? 
So yeah, how do you think about that? How does the Legal Priorities Project go about kind of making that trade-off or thinking about it at least? Let's start with this very, very difficult uh, trade-off between um, preserving option value and 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 logins, but also creating positive change whenever possible. I think one exception where you can mostly avoid this trade-off might be the reduction of accidental existential risk, because a reducing this type of existential risk from current levels to say let's just say zero for a very long time would be a positive trajectory change. I'm well aware people define trajectory change differently, but for me, this would still count as a trajectory change. And B, would preserve most option value unless you want to keep an option of accidental extinction. Uh, on the contrary, you preserve many options if you don't go extinct. Um, but in most cases, you're absolutely right. This, this trade-off exists and there are many more considerations that go into this, which I can't possibly all mention here. But maybe as a starting point to trying to understand this trade-off, it's helpful to clarify that one reason for preserving option value is that we just really don't know what's best. There's a huge amount of normative uncertainty. At least I'm, I'm not confident enough to lock in many values for a very long period, say at least for thousands of years, given that I'm very uncertain with regards to what these values should be. And I don't think many people should be sufficiently confident uh, in their judgments on these values. Um, if, if, if you go back in history only a few hundred years and ask yourself what kind of values would have likely been locked in if there was the chance to do that, like slavery, human sacrifice, hunting witches, I don't think these very, very widely endorsed values would have been a terribly good choice to lock in. But people were still very confident at the time that those are the right values. And so we might want to be skeptical right now whether we have the right values. It would have to be all things considered, a pretty big coincidence if it turns out that our generation is really the first one which just got it right. Um, so maybe on top of the fact that we don't know what's best, we also don't know how to deal with the fact that we don't know what's best. So re research on normative uncertainty is just beginning. And of course, you, you can go further back and ask how to deal with the uncertainty of how to deal with the normative uncertainty and so on and so forth. And and since really this, this course is just starting, Locking in values now or sometime soon doesn't seem like a great idea to me. Um, I think based on some of these concerns, uh, Will McAskill's idea, and, and others have uh, written about this too, uh, the idea of a long reflection where people you know, sit down perhaps for tens of thousands of years or even a million years and think about what kind of values are best uh, seems kind of attractive to me before any sort of proper lock-in. But of course, if you think that you want to be able to debate these things a lot before locking into a specific value system, you need to create societal and political structures that allow you to debate that. And that, of course, depending on how you define the lock-in effect, especially with regards to its duration, might constitute a sort of lock-in as well. It may be justified because it's less strong of a lock-in if it can be qualified as such where you preserve a lot of option value, but, but it's not neutral. But if you're fine with this, you might be thinking about how to actually create this. And some of the norms which allow public discourse nowadays, like democracy, freedom of speech, and these kinds of things, um, 
and some constitutions, like like the German one, uh, are protecting these values very strongly. So, for instance, in in Germany, you can amend the constitution with a two-third uh, majority, but there are a few exceptions to this where a so-called eternity clause applies. And the principle of democracy is protected by such an eternity clause. So even if the legislator wanted to change that, say, um, and, and, and say that they will get rid of democracy, um, that would be based on this eternity clause legally not possible. There, there is a debate, there's still a debate whether it's still possible anyway. And legally speaking, I personally think it actually is, <laughs> but at least it's a lot, lot harder to do that. Okay, all right. So those are some traditional norms to consider when setting the stage for a long-lasting um, debate for a period of long reflection or wh whatever terminology you prefer in this regard before any uh, sort of proper lock-in effect. Um, and these constitutional norms have, of course, been like very long debated. Um, a right that I think is a lot less debated but might become much more important in this context is freedom of thought rather than speech. You know, there's like marketing is just <laughs> pretty pretty wild these days. Um, and we, we now also have this state equivalent of marketing, which is nudging. There's Neuralink, potential AI, human brain interfaces, or potential cognitive enhancement technologies, all leading to a reduction of diversity of thought, which may be bad for unconventional ideas which may in turn be bad for thinking what the best thinking about what the best societal setup and organization for the long-term future might be and which values to log in. Um, but I really want to emphasize that this is all still very speculative, uh, though I do think worthwhile looking into. Um, maybe some, sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm going on, but there was so much in your question. Some final, th some final thoughts on, on lock-in effects from constitutions, because you alluded to that as well, and, and many others have done so in the past in the long-termist community. I think just to make this uh, long story a bit shorter, um, I think they're overrated in some ways. I think the debate has been too much influenced by the example of the US Constitution, which to me is an, is an outlier in two, maybe even, yeah, maybe even three crucial dimensions. First, regarding length, the average lifespan of a constitution is actually only 16 years. That is one six. Um, oh, that wow. surprised me too when I saw this number, but uh, that, that seems to be right. Um, we may think that the lifespan could be a lot longer going forward. For instance, if constitutional values are locked into a very powerful AI system. But so far, that has not been the case. Uh, second point is regarding the amendability. It's very tough to amend the US constitution. Others are much easier to amend, and in fact, they get amended more frequently. Um, and the potential third point, the US Constitution and its norms are very broad. Uh, I only want to say potential third point because all constitutions, even those ones which are more specific than the US Constitution, are still very broad. Um, all right. The, to avoid any confusion here, the reason... I think working on constitutional law is still very valuable. It's not because they themselves are longer lasting than, for instance, criminal law. If, if anything, it's the other way around. But if technologies are developed in this century or after that, which make a lock-in of some sort not unlikely, even if there aren't many people aiming at that, then we better have a somewhat decent lock-in in case one occurs. And although not all political systems are based on constitutions, the countries in which 
it's most likely that these technologies will be developed, especially transformative AI. Uh, first, have constitutions, <laughs> and second, put a high normative value on these constitutions, uh, which might lead us to expect that they will be consulted during this process. Uh, so to, to, to wrap up all of these points, uh, I think current constitutions will only have this lock-in effect you are concerned about if there are additional technological developments that allow the constitutions to have this effect, but it is very unlikely that they create this effect on their own. Yeah, I like what you said about this question of kind of normative uncertainty, where we can be almost confident that we don't know exactly what's best to lock in given the opportunity right now. And that leads to a question of what to do <laughs> in that case. And it sounds like the right answer is just to keep our options open as much as possible. And although it has a kind of flavor of paradox or something, maybe what that means is closing off some options and specifically the options that are just obviously bad and would close off more options in the future, if that makes sense. And so one example is making the chance as small as possible that we encounter any catastrophe before we can kind of lock in decisions we're more confident in. And also I like the example you gave of um, thinking about how to preserve something like freedom of thought as well as freedom of speech when we have the kind of technological means maybe to limit freedom of thought in the future. I hadn't really come across that thought before. There are good reasons to think that working on making sure that really great freedom of speech laws are there. And by really great freedom of speech laws, I don't necessarily mean that you should just say whatever you want. <laughs> um, um, I mean that freedom of speech laws that allow discourse, but also are mindful of a discourse that could hurt people. Um, with And there's obviously from both political sides um, quite a lot of uh, resources in uh, terms of uh, both uh, people simply working on it and money going into this. Um, but freedom of thought really seems to be just utterly neglected. And if I look at some of the technologies which are being developed, and, 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 and even already now with regards to like marketing tools and nudging and all these kinds of things, but like much more so with regards to the future and how human thought and AI might be uh, connected I would worried that I'd be really worried that it, in order to figure out what the best societal setup, what really the best values for such a lock-in might be, that we need a lot of diversity of thought in order to get to unconventional ideas. Um, I guess now I'm somewhat repeating myself, uh, but just to strengthen this point, I think there's actually quite a bit of work to be done. I'm also far from being an expert in freedom of thought, um, but but so are the vast majority of law professors. And uh, if there were more people looking into this question, I think uh, that might be uh, worthwhile. Yeah. This is super interesting. And I'd just personally like to look into this freedom of thought stuff a little bit more. Um, one thing I'm wondering is you can imagine worlds maybe where um, some amount of diversity of, of thinking, especially along kind of political or moral lines, it's not legally prohibited but it's also just not there for whatever reason. And that makes me wonder about whether there are legal mechanisms, not just for prohibiting certain things, patterns of thought in this case, but also for encouraging them. Um, and I was meaning to ask a kind of broader question which this plugs into, which is, um, do you have thoughts about the extent to which laws should be designed around positively promoting some vision of 
the good, right? As contrasted with just, you know, securing some minimal set of rights um, or just screening off things which obviously aren't allowed um, but don't have much to do with what you might call kind of morals or ethics. Um, I guess this is something like the question of perfectionism in political philosophy. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Um, overall, I would not worry too much about the law trying to improve people's lives, <laughs> including uh, that of uh, future people and evaluating the law based on that. I think what some people have in mind is a situation in which this goes too far and actions with minor consequences are also regulated by law. But I think for the most part, this is confusing the evaluation of individu individual action on the one hand and laws on the other. When, when I ask myself whether law X is justified, what one should be doing if you try to promote happiness or well-being of some sort is, is to ask yourself whether this law itself maximizes happiness, right? What you should not be doing is to ask yourself whether the behavior you have in mind regulating, regulating maximizes well-being. Uh, those seem like very similar questions, but they're very, very, very different. Uh, the action you, you are evaluating is whether to pass a law, not whether the behavior you are thinking about addressing with this law is moral or not. Um, I think this is really often confused in public discourse but there are very few, if any, legal scholar at all who actually think that that would be a good idea. Um, there, there's a view called legal moralism and criminal law theory, which is kind of similar to that view, but even they make exceptions and just don't criminalize whatever might be considered as immoral. Uh, now, luckily, you, you can still, as, as, as you say, promote a vision of the good. Uh, without regulating every little detail about society. For instance, by pointing out that the welfare of future generations should be considered um, human rights and happiness matters and, 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 and so on. Um, in fact, it may well be the case that regulating every little detail about society would be pretty harmful for a number of reasons. It's not, so f first, it's not very liberal because you don't trust the people to make decent judgments and and. And here I'm referring to liberal in the European sense, so it does not allow for freedom of choice. It's arguably not very democratic because people will hate it, <laughs> depending on how, how far you actually go. Um, it may also be perceived, and, and your comments already alluded to this, it, it may be perceived as the state communicating that there's no uncertainty when it comes to evaluating these individual actions. Um, that is not to, to say that the state would actually do it, but rather that it would be perceived that way, which uh, could harm the discourse as well. And ultimately, it might be very efficient. And that's probably the point I care most about. It might not be very efficient when it comes to promoting the good, because it would distract from the big challenges humanity is facing. I'm simply much more concerned about the big questions than about regulating tiny aspects of life. I'm more concerned about figuring out a just protection of future generations, non-human animals, a just tax system, and so on. Um, whether like a state nudges people to get a bit more healthy is not like too much of my concern. Although philosophically speaking, it's kind of fun to think about it. Um, that that all having said, I should clarify that at the same time, I would not go as far as Mill and adopt some sort of libertarian principle here. I think. 
I think he went a little too far in, on liberty. Um, but as a matter of prioritization, I think the state with limited resources should focus primarily on the challenges that are more important to solve than others, like pandemics, the safe development of artificial intelligence, climate change, and, and so on. Thanks, that's a great answer. I just feel like uh, clarifying the question, which is just to be clear, what I had in mind is not, hey, should the law be more moralistic in the sense of should we be just kind of re regulating or restricting more things we don't, more behaviors we don't like? Um, because I agree in most cases that, that probably would end up being bad. But maybe it's something like, um, shouldn't there be more emphasis in legal scholarship um, on the reason we have laws in the first place, which is presumably in large part just to make the world better uh, and just kind of drawing the connection more strongly between um, drafting and implementing laws and the outcomes? I, yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting question. I, depending on who you ask in, in philosophy of law, people will tell you that either people are focusing on this too much or way too little. <laughs> um, I agree that they're probably focusing still too little on this while uh, the like most people within legal philosophy focus on questions such as what is law and then lots of uh, problems related from that question um whereas i'm more interested in the question of let's just say like we can agree that like this and that can be considered as law for our purposes how do we figure out what the best laws are? And ideally, then um, one would take into account the consequences of legal change and laws more generally. But consequentialism is not necessarily something that legal researchers and philosophers are very happy to endorse, um, to say the least. It, 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 it of course differs a bit like in in the in the us i would say that consequentialism is um people are much happier to discuss consequentialist implications than for instance in in germany um but it's not like nearly as common as it would be uh, or as it is in in moral philosophy or even in political philosophy yeah, we, we've talked a lot here, right, about these kind of like long-termist law protecting future generations and all of these kind of like bigger kind of abstract questions and then also some of the like kind of more concrete goals. Um, to maybe like round off this interview, I'm also really interested to hear how your own legal priorities project fits into all of this and in particular what kind of work that you guys have been getting up to. So some of this we've we've mentioned here, um, for example, like the, the survey or as you just mentioned, uh, I guess kind of like uh, groups of, of law students uh, having a go at some of these things as well. But yeah, like what else are you uh, concretely looking to achieve or what kind of uh, projects do you have going on at the moment? Yeah, so... Outside of academic research, we do all kinds of things like our summer research fellowship. Um, we have a legal priorities lab where anyone is welcome to join, uh, usually happening on Fridays. We have office hours as well. All these kinds of things to, to build a community of researchers that work on law and long-termism. Um, and you can get more info on our website and we will likely expand these types of community building efforts uh, even more soon. With regards to specific research questions um some listeners might want to think about more uh, I, I mentioned a few or a few already uh, during our conversation but 
uh, I would generally want to refer to our research agenda, which is quite comprehensive. Um, if you're uncertain about whether a topic you're considering is a good topic, uh, feel free to uh, reach out to us or others, get feedback. I guess the usual tips apply here. Um, and then, of course, at some point, we want real-world impact. Um, we're not just doing research for its own sake. We will have to focus first on research, um, at least to some degree, because it's really tough to argue for something if you haven't done that much research on it. Uh, after all, you know, if you don't know what a good solution to a problem might look like. So, for instance, what is the best constitutional norm to protect future generations and you're just really uncertain about this, you don't really want to guess around. Um, but uh, from time to time, we already do give advice uh, and feedback on policy proposals, which we are more confident about. Um, and I assume that might increase over time with us getting more confident um, about what exactly to argue for um, with regards to some of these challenges. Yeah, and um, you plugged kind of the, the research agenda here. Do you maybe want to give just like one or two kind of like examples of what these kinds of open questions look like and what kind of person with a background might be a good fit for, for answering these? Since there are quite a few research questions we outlined, um, which are still quite abstract, so you will have to develop more concrete uh, questions based on the question we outlined, I think that people with very different backgrounds can make progress on different questions, right? We have um, uh, a section on advanced artificial intelligence, biosecurity, institutional design, and then also on meta research, where we outline some questions, which it would be really great to find answers to with regards to how to prioritize in the first place, or what kind of aspects, uh, what kind of challenges might be more important than others. Um, I think even when it uh, comes to uh, climate change, it may well be the case that within legal research that it is a bit less neglected than in um, comparison to other fields, which might, uh, all things equal, um, lead to thinking that working on climate change uh, should score a bit higher on a prioritization scale within a law. And so people who are interested in that, I also encourage you to to to, to work on that. We also have um, uh, some people working with us now on developing a new part of our research agenda on climate change, um, which I'm quite excited about. And yeah, other than that, I would advise not to hesitate to reach out to help if you for help if you are interested in some of these questions and um, um, but you are uncertain about how exactly you can contribute. I think from a vast range of uh, disciplines in general when it comes to global priorities research, but also especially with regards to law. And one last thing I want to mention in this regard, which I think should not be underemphasized, is that even if you are from a, a jurisdiction or a legal education system where interdisciplinary research is not very high on their agenda, which is the case in, in still many countries, especially in civil law countries. Um, I think you can still uh, contribute quite a bit towards legal parties research because some of the questions I also outlined previously with regards to just clarifying what the legal landscape currently looks like in order then to be able to inform policymakers on where we actually need new regulations and, and, and laws. Um, 
this can be extremely helpful. So only because you don't have like an additional like quantitative background or so, uh, I wouldn't worry about that and would um, just start to try to work on these topics if you're interested in them. Yeah, no, fantastic. And we will include the research agenda in our write-up and also links to, to your website where this is all mm -hmm. uh, much more uh, detailed. Let's move on to the final questions. Um, Finn, do you maybe want to want to take on those? Yeah, happy to. So the first question we ask all our guests is what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? I think I have to say how much Liga Academia thinks the interest rights welfare of future generations are neglected. Um, people actually want to protect future generations much, much stronger than I thought. And the reason for this change obviously was to just actually empirically test it with the survey we run. Um, so to those of you who are interested in this line of work and previously thought it's it's kind of strange and unusual to work on these things, like including existential risk, uh, I want to say work on that. Long-termism is not as, even sometimes in EA uh, circles, uh, it's referred to as like weird or so. I think it may be unusual given current practice, but I don't think it can be classified as weird. I don't think it also helps a lot to refer to it as being weird. Maybe un unusual is a better way to describe it, but yeah, just as like a, um, to, to, to motivate you in, in general that uh, uh, working on these things is greatly appreciated by many people you wouldn't think appreciate this line of work. Yeah, I love that. Like, presumably, if you think it's important, you should work on it anyway. But there's this bonus that it looks like people think it's more important than they let on, at least among these experts. Yeah, I think, like, if you think it's important to work on this anyway, what um, some people who give career advice um, uh, from a long-term perspective, I guess, would argue is that maybe even if you think it's super important to work on long-termism and making sure uh, um, existential risk can be reduced, would say that a lot of your impact comes from the very end or uh, last stages of your career. So in order to get to a, a very high-ranking position where you can have more impact, maybe go with more conventional wisdom and then do all the long-termist things you are interested in and uh, want to prioritize. Um, but I think now the argument, at least in law, could also be, no, like you, you can start with that right away. <laughs> There's uh, people really appreciate this line of work and it wouldn't harm you. The other question we ask all our guests is what are three books, articles, films, podcasts, or who knows what else would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about what we talked about? All right. Um, yeah, aside from what I already mentioned, like the agenda or the survey, um, I would, if you want to be a little scared, I would recommend Nick Bostrom's Vulnerable World Hypothesis. I think it's a fun read. Uh, then I really want to recommend Joe Hendricks' The Weirdest People in the World, which is really an extension of his previous book, The Secret of Our Success. Uh, um, and this book is not only interesting for like legal researchers or, so, so, or psychologists, it's, it's also interesting for historians, sociologists, philosophers. There are uh, lots of really interesting theories. Um, and then uh, the last recommendation, I would have to say Hilary Greaves and Will McAskill's The Case for Strong uh, long-termism they recently published an updated version which i think is a very much uh, worth checking out christoph winter thank you so much thank you
That was Christoph Winter on the Legal Priorities Project. As always, if you want to hear more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Christoph. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. We'd be really grateful if you could leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And if you have constructive feedback, there is a link on the website to an anonymous form. Or you can get in touch with us directly by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.